As we come to the Word of God uh, this morning, I want you to understand that these are texts that um, are laid out for us, not ones that we necessarily choose. And so as a congregation together, we've been working our way through Genesis chapter 6, um, 1 to 11, and it is a significant portion of Scripture. It really is the foundation of everything. These few chapters of the Bible, they explain everything that matters in our world. And so today we are in one of these significant texts. And what I want you to try and keep in mind as we go through this text, and I think it's, it's critical for making sense both of the text and understanding it in the days in which we live, but Jesus says that just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man when he is revealed. So there's a comparison that's being made that we have to keep in our head that what is being described in the passage that we're going to read today is going to be similar to the world in which we live now as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles or if you don't, there's a Bible in front of you, Genesis chapter 6. It's um, right on the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. When man began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I was reading an old quote by Eugene Peterson uh, a couple weeks ago. He says, if we forget that the newspapers are footnotes to Scripture, and we could say blogs or news feeds now, and not the other way around, we will finally be afraid to get out of bed in the morning. Too many of us spend far too much time with the editorial page and not nearly enough with the prophetic vision, the Word of God. We get our interpretation of politics and economics and morals from journalists when we should be only getting information. The meaning of the world is most accurately given in the word of God. This is what we believe here. This is what we have been describing as we work through Genesis 1 to 11, that God best describes for us the world in which we live. We're going to look at the context of these verses. We're going to look at the meaning of them, and then we're going to apply them in the day and age in which we live. Certainly, as you heard those words read, they are challenging words, even bizarre, even shocking. 
They're uncomfortable verses in many ways as well. Human pride works to separate us from the reality that's recorded there. And we say, well, that's them. That's not us. That's their world, not our world. The person and the purposes of God are foreign to us. And we think, what a strange plan. What is God up to? And the theology that's contained in these eight verses is significant. And so I hope that as we work through them, we find a pace that will help you begin to wrestle with some of the questions that are raised in your mind as we face these matters. As I say, context matters, so let me try and put these few verses that I just read in a bit of a broader context. I've been saying that Genesis 6, one, or Genesis 1 to 11, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, are primeval history. In other words, they are the history of the world. They are the history of humankind. This is how the world started. This is why the world is as it is. This is why men and women are the way that they are. It's all described in these first 11 chapters of the Bible. And so in these first 11 chapters of the Bible, we heard that in the beginning, God, God was before there was anything, and God created the heavens and the earth. And on that earth, he, he created this earth specifically to be a dwelling place for man. And he put a garden in the middle of the earth that he had created. And he placed man in the garden. And he said, I will bless you. Just obey me. And he gave him a single command to obey. We come to chapter 3, and we're introduced to a spiritual reality almost out of the blue. It says, now the serpent was the craftiest of all the creatures that God had made. And so we're introduced to a spiritual reality there, which we understand by reading Revelation is actually Satan. Satan, who had sinned and rebelled against God, is now coming to the creation that God has made, and he's going to attempt to destroy it. And so he takes the form of a serpent, or he enters into a serpent in order to try and deceive Eve. Chapter 3, we read that the deception was successful, and we read there how sin entered into the world. We read there why the world is as it is, because of one single sin. Sin has spread to every single human being. It has spread to the farthest corners of the universe. It has spread to the depths of the sea. It is everywhere in this world in which we live. And so we understand then why we are the way we are. It's, it's because of sin, primarily, what sin has done to us and what we have done to ourselves. By the end of chapter 3, man has been forced out of the garden, forced away from the presence of God. And so now he is sent out into the world to live in this world that is now cursed by God. Yet you might recall if you've been here, right in the middle of Genesis 3 is this incredible promise. This promise of redemption, this promise that God will deliver this world from the curse, this promise that God will send a redeemer that will finally crush Satan and deal with him eternally once and for all. So then we jump into chapter 4 of Genesis, and what we find there is that two brothers are born, and those two brothers are really helpful for us to understand the nature of the hostility between these two peoples or these two humanities that make up the world in which we live now. We have the offspring of the serpent, and we have the offspring of the woman, and these two boys are representatives of those two humanities and the hostility that is between them. As you know, Cain murders his brother Abel tries to destroy the seed of the woman. And then for the rest of chapter 4, we have a description of the line of Cain. 
And the line of Cain is uh, helpful for us to understand what it is to live outside of the presence of God, to live as though God doesn't exist. And so Cain goes away from the presence of God and he begins to uh, set up camp and he begins to have children and then they have children and children and children. We have seven generations of Cain's family described. And what we see in there, amongst other things, is the exponential growth of sin amongst them. And we come to Genesis chapter 5 and we're introduced now to the godly line of Seth. And through this line, God will bring about the promised offspring of the woman. And so we see in this line of uh, Seth, God's people living in a presence of him, serving him, people walking by faith. And so when we read Genesis 6, we would have expected that to come at the end of chapter 4, when all we have is the description of a, a group of people who wanted nothing to do with God and sinned all over the place. That's where we would expect Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, which describes wickedness that is exponentially growing. But we don't find it there. We find it at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. And just so you know in your heads, I've told you before, the book of Genesis is divided into 10 books, not 50 chapters. And those books are distinguished by the phrase, and these are the generations of. And so when we come, we had these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. When we got to chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 4, that was one unit of thought. And then we picked up in um, verse five of, or chapter 5, verse 1, it says, these are the generations, or the book of the generations of Adam. And that goes all the way to verse 8 of chapter 6. And in, uh, in, in chapter 9, it says, these are the generations of Noah. So we're meant to understand chapter 5, verse 1, to the end of verse 8 in chapter 6 as one unit. And so these verses about the wickedness of men describe both the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. In other words, this is the culmination of humanity that they are plunging ever more rapidly into deep, deep sin. As we know, the heart is desperately wicked and who can understand it? And so what we have at the end of Genesis, or in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, is this spiritual reality where sin is now just gripping humanity. Within 1,600 years of creation, humanity is plunged into wickedness. And these are the days before the flood. Well, Jesus says about the days before the coming of Jesus Christ, he says, in, 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 for in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created into now. So God is saying that the day and age in which we live now is even worse than the days before the flood. Keep that in your heads. And he said, if the Lord had not cut short those days, these days in which we live, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. There's a really strong connection, too, between verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6 and chapter 5. And I said they're part of the same book. And that phrase is the daughters of men. Who are they? What do you read again and again in Genesis 5? And so-and-so had a son, and then they had other sons and daughters. And they had other sons and daughters. Ten times they had other sons and daughters. And now in chapter 6, you see this fixation on the daughters of men. 
The point is not only that daughters were born to, born to those in the line of uh, Seth because they were born in the line of Cain, but there's a focus now on these particular women born in the godly line of Cain. Even these young ladies had a sin nature. And it's not unlike what Paul describes in Romans chapter 3 when he's describing the Jews and the Gentiles. And he says, both Jews and Gentiles are fallen. They have all been plunged into sin. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, it says, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, we could say that both Sethites and Cainites, that all that God had created up until the flood, he says, both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grade, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. There's the venom of the evil one. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a description not only of our time, but also of the time before the flood. And that's the point of Genesis 6, 1 to 7 then. It's not only a summary of the spiritual reality of those in the godly line of Cain, it's a summary of the spiritual reality of all humankind to that point. All who trace their lineage back to Adam, they have all sinned in Adam. And so what we see in the end of the genealogy of Adam is all humanity have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's a little bit of the context to help us place Genesis 6, 1 to 8 in the first five and a bit chapters of Genesis. So then, divine blessing and demonic corruption. Let's look at the text. Moses begins, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. This is simply saying there's a population explosion. This is what God would said when men and women uh, unite in marriages, that they will have children, and that is his blessing upon them. And so we see the blessing of God, even on sinful, rebellion, rebellious human, human people, as they enter into these unions, they have children, and daughters are born to them. God blessed them. In, in chapter 2, it says, as God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, it says, God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so that's what's happening, that God is blessing them and they are being fruitful and they are filling the earth. Notice in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, too, that there is not a single reference to demons. It's all to man. Nine times man and men is used there. God is addressing them, he's addressing their sinfulness, and he's judging them. And so understand that, keep that in your heads as we will come back to it in a moment. Then Moses tells us that during this population explosion, daughters were born to them. Why does he zero in on daughters? We know that sons and daughters were being born, and we know that you need sons as well as daughters in order to perpetuate a population. So why does he zero in on daughters? Well, it's because the daughters' union in marriage with the sons of God are going to be the issue. Secondly, he says, the sons of God. 
and they're highlighted. A couple of things he says about them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. There's an obvious link here, I think, going back to Eve in the garden. You say, how so? Well, it says Eve saw that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil was good, and she took and ate. Here we see where the sons of God saw that the women of men were attractive. They took any of them as wives as they pleased. The implication is that there was something sinful, wrong about those relationships. There was something about those marriages that was wrong. I was thinking of that in light of Samson. We read in Judges that Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came and he told his father and mothers, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, there's not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you must take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. There's an implication that this attraction was a sinful attraction that these sons of God had towards the daughters of men. Behind this, though, even in those marriage unions, there's a complicity that's sort of understood. There's a complicity that, that these sons of men, whoever they were, and we'll talk about them, um, went and although they took the woman, they, they, there had to be some agreement or some asking. There had to be some agreement of the families to approve of these unions. There had to be some public acknowledgement of these unions. And so it wasn't that they just happened in the middle of nowhere when nobody was looking. There is some public reality, some complicitness of those around them in these marriages. So the issue, though, seems to be then these unions that have been created by the sons of God being attracted to and then taking as wives some of the daughters of men. And part of that is, well, that's the unit that God blesses. That's the unit. This marriage unit is the unit from which humanity will continue to be born. But something happens because God says at the end of this description, he says, my spirit will not always strive with flesh. for his days shall be 120 years. There's a world of um, difficulties in that one phrase. I'm not going to give them to you. I'm just going to tell you what I believe. I think that what it's saying is God is saying, my spirit, capital S, my Holy Spirit is not going to endure this forever. And in fact, after 120 years, I will bring judgment, which is the flood. There's a period of grace. There's a clear indication of God's judgment that is to come. My spirit is not going to strive forever. But for 120 years, there's grace. And then comes the judgment. So God is, this, this, these unions are the culmination of rebellion against God, to which he says, enough. Then we read in Genesis 6, 4, and if you have your Bibles, you'll see that reference to the Nephilim. There's a lot of speculation of who the Nephilim are. It simply says that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they took and bore children to them. I don't believe the Nephilim are the offspring of those relationships. The Nephilim are just another group of people that were on the earth at the same time that these marriages 
were taking place. But there's something unique about the Nephilim that, that Moses tells us here, that these were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Other uh, translations will say that they were men of violence or they were men of mighty acts. There seems to be some suggestion that these Nephilim were a powerful group of men on the earth at that time who were characterized by their strength and possibly even by their violence amongst the people that were on the earth in those days. There's only one other place where the Nephilim are mentioned in Scripture, and it's in Numbers chapter 13, verse 32. And it's in the context of a bad report from the spies that Moses had sent to view the land of Canaan. If you're familiar with the Bible, you remember that when the people of Israel came to the border of the line of Canaan, Moses picked 12 spies and said, go spy out the land. Ten of them came back with a bad report. And so when you read Numbers chapter 13, verse 32, understand that they are falsifying their report. And so when they say that we saw Nephilim and they were like giants and we were like grasshoppers, they were exaggerating something about these people that they saw. And that's why some of the translations of Genesis 6 will say the Nephilim were giants. I don't think that's justified by the text. They were simply mighty men. They were men, men of renown. It's clear that they were men. They were not some freak species. They were human men, characterized, though, by certain realities. And then we say, well, who are the sons of God in this text? You need to know that there are two major paths, and both of those two major paths split into two further interpretations. I'm not going to give those to you just for the sake of time, and I don't want to confuse you. You can go on your own, and you can read, or you can watch on YouTube, uh, you can find people that take completely different views from the one I'm going to give you today. But I want to explain to you why I have come to believe what I have come to believe about this particular text. I have wrestled with it for years, dozens and dozens of years. And I'm not saying what I've concluded is right, but what I've concluded is what I feel most comfortable with in Scripture. So to put it on the table, I've concluded that the sons of God are angels, fallen angels. Let me tell you why. From a historical perspective, this is the oldest interpretation amongst the church and the people of God. The Greek, tra uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which is a, 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 a very reliable translation, interprets this as angels or fallen angels. Jewish historians, almost to a T, all of them interpret this text as fallen angels. This is not all that matters, but it, it helps me at least realize that at least I'm in a line and of interpretation that's not just bizarre. It's, it's well documented. Secondly, from an a, a, a exegetical point of view, a biblical point of view, this phrase, exact phrase, sons of God, is only used three other times in the Old Testament. It's used in Job 1.7, in Job 2.1, and in Job 38.17. And all three times it refers to divine beings. There is no other reference to the sons of God in the Old Testament but those three, and it always refers to divine beings. Added to this is the contrast that is being made. The sons of God is contrasted with the daughters of men. There's a contrast being implied there in the text itself. 
But then there are three New Testament references which you have to take into account, I believe, in your interpretation. And so I'll give you those three texts. I'll say them quickly, and, and you can look at them on your own, but I think they shed light on how we understand and interpret Genesis 6. The first one is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. The context of 2 Peter is the certainty that God is going to judge false teachers. And then we come to verse 4, and Peter writes this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, the assumption is, will he not also judge false teachers? So the question is, how did the angels sin? Who were these angels that sinned? When did they sin? Peter doesn't tell us here. He simply says that God judged the angels when they sinned and cast them into darkness for the day of judgment. Now, keep in mind that Peter is following a, chronic, uh, a historical chronology. So after he talks about the angels that sinned and were cast into darkness, then he talks about uh, the time of Noah. And then he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. So he puts the angels fall before the flood and before Sodom and Gomorrah. So in my head, I said, okay, he must be talking about something that happened pre-flood. Then you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Or I think that might be actually 3, verses 18 to 20. And listen to these verses. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely. So he's gone to talk to say, uh, spirits who were active when the ark was being built, and he makes a proclamation to them. So these spirits are in prison because they had disobeyed in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. It's interesting to note that this word spirits in Peter is never used of human beings in the New Testament, only when it's qualified by a genitive. Otherwise, it's always referring to spiritual beings. So Jesus has gone after his death to the place of Shoal, I don't believe hell, but he's made a proclamation. So he goes to a place and he makes a proclamation. He's not gone with the gospel. What he's gone with is he's gone to make a proclamation to those spirits in prison of his victory over them, which was signed and sealed at the cross when he defeated Satan. So that leads me to conclude that the beings that were in prison that Jesus went to make proclamation to were those that were active during the days when the ark was being built, and they are now held in darkness because of their disobedience. So in Peter, you have two different places that writes about the sin of angels during the days before the flood. Then you have Jude chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And there it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness 
until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, so there's a comparison being made between Sodom and Gomorrah and between the angels that sinned in Noah's day, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude is also warning of false teachers and their certain judgment to come. And while Jude does not specify a time period, it's clear that he has in mind the same incident that Peter refers to. And notice that Jude says, angels that didn't stay within their proper abode. Just as we have boundaries that God says stay within those, that every created thing that God has made has boundaries within, it's, with, with, within which they are to follow and they are to stay. And angels went outside of that. They left the, the, the creational boundaries that God has set for them. They abandoned their proper abode, both probably their abode in heaven or their abode wherever they were by coming to earth and their abode of the boundaries of the kind of behaviors that they were created to uh, live within. And as a result, they are under judgment. In the same way, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for overstepping boundaries that God had placed on them. And that phrase, which likewise, the sin of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah was in the same category as the angels that went outside the boundaries that God had set for them. And what was that? They indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. So in other words, the sons of God looked in a sinful way on the daughters of men who were attracted, and they did so with unnatural desire and they took as wives and engaged in sexual immorality. So then what does it look like? Taking all these texts together, they seem to be describing an angelic rebellion, an invasion of sorts during the days of Noah, which resulted in following angels somehow inhabiting men who then married the daughters of men. Bizarre. We'll try and bring it together because you've got to wrestle with this. You're going to read this again and again. And so you might as well wrestle with it. This is the consequence of a life that ignores the path that God has laid out for you. We know, we read that Enoch was a preacher. He was a prophesier of, uh, to the ungodly. We know that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Again and again, they preached to the people on the earth for 120 years. If you uh, take my interpretation of my spirit, will not always strive with men. For 120 years, they proclaimed, leave the path of evil, walk in the path of God. And these people listened to the lies of Satan rather than the truth of God. So let's bring this then maybe a little bit clearer then to the day and age in which we live. This shouldn't strike us as odd. First of all, if you read Revelation 12, you realize that one-third of the angels that God created followed Satan. That is millions and millions of angels followed Satan in Satan's rebellion. It's hard to understand. It's hard to fathom. But there is a cosmic rebellion in the spiritual realm in which one-third of the angels followed Satan. Their activity amongst humankind is considerable. We already read how Satan inhabited a serpent. You can read in a little bit later in Genesis how angels came to Abraham in a human form. The Bible reminds Christians that some of them have entertained angels. 
In Jesus' time, a good part of his ministry was casting out demons who had come to inhabit humans. Satan has considerable power. He's a liar. He is a deceiver. John, in the book of Revelation, tells us about his demonic influence on humanity in the last days. And what are the last days? Let me remind you. The last days are the, is the time period between the birth of Christ and the return of Christ. It's the time period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so what we're reading in Genesis 6 is that humankind has become complicit with these fallen angels who had rebelled, these spiritual beings. And the original lie of Satan to Adam has seemed to exploded in scope. And so like Eve, men are now friendly with fallen spirits. They have no fear of them. They have no rejection of them. They, 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 they don't consider them to be dangerous or hostile towards them. And the result then was demonically influenced homes, demonically influenced marriages, demonically influenced culture, demonically influenced children, such that God says, I will judge this humanity. And notice again, I just remind you, in this text, God doesn't go after the angels. God will judge the angels. He already said that. But here it says again and again, my spirit will not always strive with men. God will judge humankind. Humankind had wholeheartedly listened to the lies of Satan. They'd embraced the influence of fallen angels and had tried to find a path of living in immortality without God. God was nowhere in their thinking. In Genesis 6, we have human evil on a level which is almost incomprehensible where people engage with the very powers of hell, the very demons themselves, in a willful engagement in an attempt to thwart the purposes of God. Loved ones, it only takes a few minutes of reading the New Testament to realize that the impact of demonic oppression described in the Gospels is real and it is appropriate for today that their impact on humans is anything but benign. They are shown to be cruel parasites intent on the destructions of individuals who serve as their cruel hosts. I was just in my devotions this morning. I was reading in a few paces in Acts chapter 10, and um, uh, Cornelius sends to uh, Peter to say, come and share the gospel. And so Peter begins to share the gospel with them, and he talks about how Jesus Christ came and lived and died and was rose from the dead in order to deliver people from the tyranny of the devil, from the oppression of the devil. Right now, Satan is tyrannizing people. He's oppressing people. He is at work in our world. I was reading in Mark chapter 5 of the Gerizimak, I can't even say it, demoniac who was filled with a legion of demons and how Jesus came and delivered him, freed him from those demonic hosts that had taken up residence in his life and in his world. And today Satan continues to spew his lies. I was thinking of Revelation chapter uh, two and three, and the three of the seven churches. In one of the churches, it says, I know that you live where Satan dwells. And another church, it says, I know you live where there is a synagogue of Satan. And another place, I know you live where there is a synagogue of Satan. Jesus is talking about the reality of churches in our day and age, these last days in which we live. And then you read Revelation 9, and this is one of the most shocking texts in all of the Bible. But in, Gen in Revelation 9, you have the release of these demonic hordes that come and taunt and torment humankind, describing the reality of the last days in which we live now. 
You only need in the last six months to look at what's been exposed in the fashion industry in our world and the demonic evil that is behind our fashion industry and the demonic evil that is influencing the entertainment industry and the demonic evil that is influencing the music industry and the demonic evil that is influencing our own way of thinking and what we think is right when what is right is wrong and what was wrong is right. And there is an influence of evil in our world today which is as bad, even worse than the days of Noah. And the enmity that God had placed between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan has been crushed and suppressed and people no longer fear the evil one or the forces of evil. In Timothy, Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in the last days, listen to this, in the last days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. That demonic influence has even made its way into the church. It's made its way into, into the places where we gather to be taught and to learn. As people turn truth upside down as they twist it through the influence of demonic spirits. John's summary at the end of the age is that the people of the earth did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons. Loveland, we have to understand that there is more to this world than meets the eye. That this physical world that we can touch and see and hear and taste and feel is not all there is. There is a spiritual realm and a spiritual reality that is at war with what God has made and with the people of God. This is the way the world works. God has given us the Bible, and particularly the book of Revelation, to give us heaven's perspective on earth. In the book of Revelation, you can read how John describes the world in which we live. It's not a world that can be only understood in an empirical sense. The way to understand this world is also to understand it in a spiritual sense, in a spiritual reality. Conflict of massive proportions in which it says that Satan is at work and he's angry and he knows his time is limited, so he's gone to make war with those who obey the commands of God and profess the name of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, our days are likened to the days of Noah. You read that again and again in the New Testament. Our days are likened to the days of Noah. The days before the return of Christ are just as the days before the flood. This is no time for compromise. This is no time for messing around with spiritual realities and playing games with demonic, satanic things. This is not the time to mess around with contrary teaching. It's not the time to compromise on truth. These are the days in which we have to stand, where we have to fight, where we have to resist the evil one. What does it say? Resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. Be aware of the schemes of the devil. 
this one who disguises himself as an angel of life, the one who is a liar and a murderer. Greater is he that is in me, the Spirit of God, than he that is in the world. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, do you believe this is an evil day? And stand in the armor of God. See, Genesis 6, I believe, serves an example, a historic example, giving us insight into the days in which you and I now live. And Genesis 6 says, don't compromise with dramatic realities. Don't compromise with spiritual powers that you don't know don't, don't give yourself to them. Don't mess with them. Don't think this is child's play. And next week, we will look at verses five and seven, and hopefully that will be the worst of it. But let me say, you can only escape the coming judgment by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. You can only escape the influence of the evil one by putting on the armor of God and standing in Jesus Christ. I love what Jesus said to his disciples as he sent them out. He says, Lord, they came back and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Loved ones, you are safe in Jesus Christ. Loved ones, Jesus Christ is a refuge from the evil that's in the world in which we live. Never, ever, ever make friends with the evil one. Father, thank you for your word. There's no doubt that this text in Genesis is a strange one to our ears today particularly ears which have been trained only to think of material realities, only to think that what exists is what we can see and touch and taste and hear and feel. But Father, I am so often and have been reminded in my life of the genuine reality of evil. I have felt it. I am tempted by it. I battle with it. I've been delivered from it. I am protected from it by Jesus Christ. May we never take a text like this for granted. May we never throw it out because it's too hard to understand. And may we hear so clearly your words, even if we don't fully understand what Genesis 6 is saying, that is in the days before the flood, sin was rampant. So in the days before the coming of Christ, sin will be rampant. Oh, Father, help us to lift our eyes towards heaven. Help us to again and again say, Maranatha. Jesus, come quick. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.